What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. In late November, we were joined in studio by Nobel Prize winner Maria Reza. Recorded in London, she sat down with journalist Gabriel Gatehouse to discuss her lifetime commitment to journalism, the consequences she's facing today, including a possible sentence of 99 years in jail, and her optimism for a brighter future, and how to repair our democracies, which have been so divided by surveillance capitalism and digital dictatorship. Here's our host, Gabriel Gatehouse, with more. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Gabriel Gatehouse, and today I'm sitting down with Maria Reza. She's the co-founder and CEO of the Filipino news website Rappler and recipient, together with the Russian journalist Dmitry Muratov, of the 2021 Nobel Peace Prize for her brave commitment to free expression, human dignity, and democratic government in reporting on the authoritarian Duterte administration. Born in the Philippines, uh, she was kidnapped, those are her own words, at the age of 10 by her mother and taken to the United States. There she would learn English, excel at high school and go to Princeton University before eventually returning to the Philippines. She cut her teeth at CNN during the heyday of their dominance of rolling news, heading bureaus from Manila to Jakarta. And then in 2012, along with three other female founders, she established the online news site Rappler, one of the first multimedia news websites in the Philippines. While Rappler has been recognised internationally for its reporting, the publication's critical coverage of then-President Rodrigo Duterte and his bloody and ruthless war on drugs has meant that its journalists and its founders have faced danger and uncertainty. The former president and his allies have launched multiple attacks on Rappler, initiating investigations and unleashing cyber troll armies. And earlier this year, Maria lost her appeal against a conviction for cyber libel. There are still ongoing cases against Maria Racer and against Rappler that are being pursued by the Philippine authorities. And if convicted on all counts, she's been told she faces up to 100 years in jail. 
And yet, the Philippine authorities are perhaps not her most powerful adversary. Maria Reza has said of Facebook that it represents one of the gravest threats to our democracies around the world. She joins me now to talk about her incredible commitment to speak truth to power and why it's so crucial in today's age of disinformation and declining democracies, which is also the basis for her new book, an excellent book, How to Stand Up to a Dictator. Um, Maria Reza, welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you very much um, for being here with us. Now, you've talked about social media destroying a shared reality, the place where democracy happens. Could this have happened without your favorite social media platform, Facebook? You know, I I use Facebook a lot because that's where we have data. And I still use Facebook. But in in the book, I, I show the evidence that we had from there, right? This is data. This is proven. But I would put it to all social media at this point in time because it's the business model of social media that commodifies us. That essentially, you know, they use machine learning to create these models of us. Don't use the word model. Use the word clone. So machine learning clones us. Then they say, because we created that clone, this is your private thoughts, your deeds, we now own that. So that's that database that these social media platforms have that is the foundation of micro-targeting. That's how they were able to bring things like uh, Russian information operations person-to-person in hand-to-hand combat, right? This is a different time. and uh, They know us better than we know ourselves. Uh, that's what the clone does, <laughs> right? It's it's almost like, it's, it's funny, I was talking with a friend about this, and it's almost like you went to a psychiatrist and you unloaded your deepest, darkest secrets. And then that psychiatrist then said, yo, who wants to buy Maria's secrets, Gabriel's mm. secrets? And it is insidiously manipulative of you. That's what we're living through. And the business model is is what? They want to sell us stuff, right? Um, it's called surveillance capitalism. The companies themselves, these tech companies, make money off advertising. And the advertisers... So this advertising is very, very different from the advertising we used to do in media, where everyone sees the exact same thing. There's lots of different things. But the core problem, the core difference is data, right? We... News organizations, traditional advertising didn't have that kind of uh, the models, the clones that then chooses the most vulnerable point to a message and feeds you that right when you need it for money. So that's the surveillance capitalism part. But then when you look at it, you put it like overlay it with geopolitical power. And we've seen this different countries. And I use Russia just because Russia invaded Ukraine itself. But Mm. this is in 2014 was when we began to see these experiments. And this is where you see the interests of the companies, i.e. make more money and the interests of despotic leaders of power that wants to manipulate us. And you see them align. And and we've sort of become familiar with this idea over the past eight, six, eight years or so. But reading your book, it's very clear that the Philippines, and in a sense, your life is ground zero for this phenomenon of of the kind of alliance between big tech and anti-democratic forces. 
Why the Philippines? <laughs> well, up until 2021, Filipinos for six years in a row spent the most time online and on social media. I saw that globally. I saw that stat in your book, and I was I was amazed. What what's the what's the background to that? Why are Filipinos so so online? I think you know you before this we were the SMS, the texting capital of the world, right? And uh, I think Brazil was our, a close second with uh-huh. when social media kicked in. But part of it, I think, is because our institutions are weak, and if you want to get something done as a Filipino, you better know someone who knows someone who knows someone, right? But there are lots of places social in the world ma- like that, right? There are, but. Remember, we're also the place where 36 years ago, people power happened. Mm -hmm. Um, We're deceptively familiar because we were an American colony, right? So we speak English. Um, We're also the place where during the time of Yahoo, digital products were first tested in the Philippines before. And, you know, in in the book, I actually point out the two biggest stories of my career. It's Islamic terrorism, the Mm -hmm. 9-11 attacks. Uh, and and this social media, this kind of information warfare, all these linked were all to the Philippines. were here. Yeah. yeah. And and it's I guess it's not even that we're ground zero. It was actually that phrase was used by Facebook, by the Cambridge Analytical whistleblower, Chris Wiley. For me, it's a story I can tell through my experiences. Gabriel, you and I know micro, macro, right? Mm. Uh I can tell you what the macro trend is, and that's the chapter title of each one, but the micro, how we got there, you know, how it looks through the eyes of someone who is pummeled. 98 messages per hour. I I mean, the first time I realized that, I was like, this is something really new. Mm. And how do you What does that feel like to be at the center of that kind of a storm? Um, it's kind of it's kind of like being in a war zone, right. right? We know when you're when you enter a war zone, you have to be ready to go in and ready to go out, especially if you're the team leader and you you're in a perpetual state of heightened awareness. In a war zone, you can stay there like two months max and then come out. You must come out yeah. because that is not a sustainable way to live. But how do you exit the online space? I mean, and this is the danger for us, right? We have been I mean, this has been 6 years. We're walking into our 7th year where we're under constant attack and it's the same methodology globally. It's exponential lies coming bottom up and then if you have a leader that uses that, if it's information operations, they come top down. Mm-hmm. And that's roughly a year, right? So a year year of seeding this and then a year later it comes top down in Tagalog bibinka where the f- fire comes from top and bottom that's mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, one of the phrases we use but it, it it's i think what's happened is it's normalized certain things that should never be normalized but just per- personally is it sustainable to to remain in between those two fires for <laughs> an extended period of time for you personally i mean for me um Part of what's given me certainty is the data, right? The work that we do. Facts. Facts. And that's the way (laughs) I simplified it for the Nobel lecture because so many countries, the U.S., U.K., when you look at what is going on, this insidious manipulation through 
only political lenses, you will get lost Mm. because it is not about the politics. You have to ask, why has politics become a gladiator's battle to the death? Mm. That isn't democracy. Mm. So it's the why that gets you to the real problem. And somehow we need to get to the core problem, which is in the end, we agree on facts. That isn't debatable. And that's how we find common ground. We used to agree on facts, but uh, we don't seem to anymore. Anyway, I I want to zoom in a little bit because you you said macro and micro, and I just want to go to the micro for a second and focus on you. Uh, How did you find journalism or how did journalism find you, whichever way around it happened? I I fell into it because I was a very good Asian American. When I went to college, my parents wanted me to be a doctor. So I went and did all this stuff. I compressed it into two years. Then after I said I didn't want to be a doctor, they said, you should be a lawyer. So I also did this, (laughs) right? Useful skills. Well, they were very good for journalism. Mm. But I think where what I really found and what I loved was understanding us, you know, uh, comparative literature, English, theater and dance. One of the quotes that I took out of college into today is a T.S. Eliot quote, uh, Tradition and the Individual Talent, where he talks about the present moment of the past. Here he's talking about, you know, how the latest novel you read or latest book you read is affected by the fact that you read Shakespeare, but that your appreciation of Shakespeare is also affected by the latest novel you read. And that, that to me had such impact because in the end you realize, I began to realize that that's kind of the way we live our lives, the present moment of the past. And yeah, you constantly you, have to check which way. And you talk a lot about the past uh, here in this book and the importance of of who owns the past yes. and who owns history and who's who's yes. learning from it and who's forgetting about it. Yes. I, Milan Kundera the, from The Unbearable Lightness of Being, he says, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And we this year elected Ferdinand Marcos Jr., overwhelmingly for president, 36 years after the people power revolt that kicked the entire family into exile, right? So we watched our history change in front of our eyes. And mm-hmm. that and now me, you're watching it repeat itself. I hope not repeat. But yes, I mean, it's back to the future. <laughs> back to my movies. <laughs> you, you, mentioned, you mentioned the theater because I, I'm very interested in this. You took a course in theater before you, before you became a journalist. I wrote a creative thesis. I wrote a play. And you put it on in Edinburgh. Yes, yes. (laughs) What was the significance of that? And and what is the significance of that still in your work today? So much, because there's so many things that, that are unknowable. You know, like, and and this was when I when I went to college. Uh, I studied all f- all five major world religions, um, religion, uh, emotions. Um, these are things that journalists stay away from. We try to focus on we want facts. things we can pin down, yeah. right? But in the end, what motivates human beings? Right. So I also studied psychology. But what I loved about the theater is that this is how you find meaning. Acting classes, strangely enough, you know, my acting classes in, in in Princeton, little exercises, something called the mirror exercise, where um, it's actually, you know, for your acting teacher will say, all right, there's A and B, you'll flip on who is leading and who is following. This is a lesson in leadership for me mm-hmm. now, and I use this with, with, with folks I, I help train. 
when you switch, you switch leaders. And what you get to, what you try to get to is a point where you are moving together Mm -hmm. and there is neither leader nor follower. I was going to say, presumably, it's also a lesson in empathy, in putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, in in the mind of somebody else, which is very hard when you're constantly focused on facts actually i find but if you think about it right and i think this is this was my my difficulty when i first became a television reporter um i always it was a tenet for me you walk in someone else's else's shoes and i guess that's partly religious but you know walk in someone else's shoes and in acting literally that is what method acting is mm-hmm. and you recreate it and then you look at the world through those lenses when i first started reporting i thought i mean i wrote this you know i thought that being a broadcast journalist is the most unnatural way of being natural and <laughs> yes you're acting all the time acting natural right acting, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and there was like like this kind of like, I know everything. I, I was too young and I know I didn't know everything. Mm-hmm. And so my boss at that point then sent back the, the real tape that I had where I did my stand-up. Where you, what do you call them? You call yeah, them... Piece to camera, we piece call them. To yeah, camera. You call them a stand-up. Yeah. yeah. And, and he said, you know, put this, put a suit on, put some makeup on. You look 16. Go drink brandy to lower your voice. <laughs> <laughs> I was like... Did you... I did, but I think I got drunk before I finished the piece. Um, I I think that being a reporter is such a tremendous honor, like when people let you in. And I think one of the things I loved about it was you give to get. You get the best if you lower lower your shields, Mm -hmm. if you give Mm -hmm. before you ask Mm -hmm. for something back. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was a tremendous privilege. And your career in journalism has really encompassed, I mean, you, you cut your teeth at CNN, as I said in the introduction, at a point where CNN was the uncontested boss of the of the breaking news, rolling news. You know, it, it bestrode the world. I will say with that, BBC. Since with, we're, okay, okay, with BBC. But, right, but, I, yeah, no. But in was, terms of breaking news oh. and, and rolling news, that, that, you know, CNN invented that basically. The golden age. And then... Uh, and and then you you went and you headed ABS CBN, the largest news group um, in the Philippines. Still at a time, there's a wonderful story in your book, and I think it's from you. Correct me, but maybe it's it's the mid noughties, twenty two thousand five, two thousand six. This is still when um, the, for want of a better word, establishment media, the the mainstream media, still had enormous power to yeah. control world events before social media, before the internet really took hold. And there's this great story that you tell about a a potential coup um, mm. from the scout rangers. Just, just yeah. d- tell us what happened there as an illustration yeah. of the power that the media once had. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so first from the CNN days, I joined CNN when it was chicken noodle news, chicken noodle <laughs> news, and, you know, and they were making fun of us. So I understand what it's like to scale up, which is kind of where Facebook came in. But in this one, I felt the power of I headed the largest news organization in the Philippines, and it was a focus point of power. And there was a coup attempt that was going on. And uh, we had a reporter. 
uh, embedded with the scout rangers, which was ready to mount the coup. The scout rangers w- of the military, were, were, of the, were the military. military. They were branch right? of the military. Yes. So they were. Remember, this is a country that has had coup attempts led by the military. This was how we had the People Power Revolt in 1986. So whoever controls the military gets the power, and the formula is always the same: military control. Then you take over the airwaves. Television right. is the next thing. Back right? in the day, don't right. have to do that anymore, right? Well, now, <laughs> now all you need yeah. is a Facebook well, account. Now, now we have a new playbook, right? But right. But, but, back I, then. but at that point, um, it was unclear what was happening. The president, Gloria Arroyo, had already declared a state of emergency, and. We knew that the coup was happening. I mean, this is a country where the rumors of the coup filter out. And and the, our reporter with the, the Philippine scout ranger said, you know, if you put us on live right now, um, they're, they're going to declare the coup. And then I was like, I was in the control room with our executive producer, and I was like, um, well, well, this is a clear line. So, no. So you say, there you are. You're sitting there, and you have the power to press the button, the go button on the coup. That was my line, right? So I told our reporter, walk out first. Tell them to walk out first. Then we put them on live. Because I, I mean, do you want the responsibility? No. Right, that is what I mean. I mean <laughs> Nobody I think, wants that responsibility. I think we're smart enough. Or at least not as, journalists. Yeah. Right. I think journalists are smart enough to know we don't know. And we don't want to be the trigger. And that, to me, was one of the lines in the sand. Like, if we had, if we had made the decision, would President Arroyo, this coup would have happened. As it was, it didn't. They never marched out. Mm. And mm. she stayed in power. So I don't know whether we did the right thing, but by standards and ethics of you journalism, did, you did the right thing we as a did journalist. The right yeah. Thing. yeah. Now, in 2012, you launch Rappler with um, three female colleagues. And at first, you love Facebook. You, this Facebook yeah. is is the thing that's that, yeah. that's driving your news site. It's bringing you success. And you think you think what? It's a force for good. Absolutely. I was the truest of true believers, you know, and um, because I was hoping that we would grow Rappler, I had I did no marketing budget. I took what would have been a marketing budget and put it towards civic engagement. So this is after almost 20 years with CNN. I wanted to come home. I chose a home and I wanted to build. Right. I felt that technology, social media. I believed in social media for social good, social media for social change. Our marketing budget went into creating a civic engagement team that went from school to school. The Philippines is a young country. The median age is 23 years old. And I was... I was at that point, you know, coming home, people knew who I was, and we were helping students understand how they could use social media for social good. And, you know, now it's so painful. You, you, you say you cringe now when you think about this keynote. It's so painful to be so wrong, because this is now the reason why democracy is dying or has died in countries around the world. But just talk a little bit. I want to talk about why social media is having such a corrosive effect. But first, just give us a little bit of the context because, you know, you launched Rappler just as the Arab Spring was happening. Right Right after. Yeah, just right after. 2011. Yeah. yeah. We launched in between. So, you know, the Arab Spring was a a key influence for me. But then uh, in 2012, so the elevator pitch for Rappler was that we build communities of action communities of action and the food we feed our communities is journalism. Mm. I wanted to, you know, I was tired of 
covering top-down politics. Because inevitably, in any country I work from, the problem is corruption, right? Power, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And that story of corruption is always there. So I thought, how incredible if we can actually help build institutions bottom-up. And that was kind of the model of the Arab Spring and and uh, the the heyday of when everyone was was feeling happy about social media and, and Facebook. empowerment. Right. But then add this other part: participatory media. I was heading the largest news organizations. I had a thousand journalists under this. And imagine if we, which is what we experimented with, we would ask our community through the largest broadcaster, you know, to come, and we built a citizen journalism campaign. We did trainings for our citizen journalists. And then we also ask them, especially during elections, to act. And they're easy things. You know, they're not, nothing is debatable about this. You know, go out and register to vote. That's easy. When ABS-CBN, the largest broadcaster, did this, our commission on elections asked us to slow down because they couldn't keep up. Right. There were things that a broadcaster can do for civic engagement and the cycle of participatory media. We were able to expose corruption because Filipinos on the streets would pull out their phone and send us photos of things that are wrong. Um, the largest election related violence in the world. And this is CPJ, Committee to Protect Journalists, that said this in 2009, 58 journalists were killed in Magindanao, Ampatuan, Magindanao. Mm. They were going to register to vote. The journalists were going with the candidate. And essentially, they were shot and killed. And then a backhoe dug their grave in broad daylight. Mm. Right? We got three messages from a citizen journalist. And that... That person I know now is a member of the military, but this was before any reporter was allowed out of the main city into this area. And his third message was a photo. And we didn't run it, but we knew in those three messages who was killed, why, people knew about it. And then we had a photo of like three bodies spread eagled with a with a recognizable car. We double checked that there was a car like that in this convoy. Mm -hmm. And that was when we ran it. At that point, no journalist was allowed in that area yet. And yet, this is to me, that was the the power. The high point. Oh, my gosh. If, imagine if every institution has a whistleblower, because yeah. that's essentially what citizen journalism yeah. is, right? But so, so this is 2012, and you are thinking that Facebook and social media is going to lead to a positive revolution, not yes. just in reporting, but in citizens' participation in their democracy. And more than that, technology to jumpstart development. Right. Because there, we were already, when I was with ABS, starting to experiment with crowdsourcing. And this is something we perfected in Rappler. And we used it for our climate change efforts. We built technology. We kind of asked, we, have an, we were the third most disaster-prone country in 2013 because we have an average of 20 typhoons every year. Mm. Climate change is very real for us. Mm -hmm. This is a major campaign for Rappler from the very beginning. And we asked, we, we literally built a platform that we handed to government where you can watch online where the typhoon is coming in. And if you need help, you just have to tweet or post. Yeah. 
or text, whatever this was. And, and the Office of Civil Defense actually put this. We were all seeing the same thing, and it saved people. The goal here is very real. Bring down the number of deaths. Bring it down from triple, from four digits to three digits to two digits. So you so you go from this place where social media is your friend, is, is helping is revolutionize. Is yeah. an enabler, right? To four years later, in 2016, and you're going to Facebook saying, hey, guys, this is all going horribly wrong. Now, just what happened in those four years? Did something change or did you realize that you'd be naive or was it a bit of both? I'd say something changed. And I would say that the that they got too greedy, you know, because they weren't until, greedy before. Not like this. Not like today, not like surveillance <laughs> capitalism today. Because remember, this is A-B testing, right, that that got us to this. 2014 is a key year. Just explain what A-B testing is, is briefly yeah. as, and, and, and simply as you can to somebody who's not terribly technical. So, um, so if you're running a website, let's yeah. not even do social media, right? Okay. If you're running a website and you want to experiment, uh, you try one tactic that's your A, a team mm -hmm. and then your B team is another tactic. Right. So in this one, what the social media platforms did. Well, so A-B testing is just real-time experimentation right. and we are Pavlov's dogs. That's yeah. the way I would explain <laughs> it, right? Um, it's kind of like if you let drug companies do this and the B team kills, you know, oh, five people and then the B team just says, the company then just says, oh, so sorry. Yeah, There's yeah, no okay. accountability. Right. This is what A-B right. testing right. actually okay. does, strangely enough. Okay, not that I brought it there, but all right. So what had changed? In 2014, if you remember, instant article came up in the West and then in 2015 in our part of the world, right? Facebook rolled out instant articles. So up until then, news was really not on Facebook. There was no systemic. We were not coming in. Um, it was already a driver of traffic for news websites, but it was instant articles that was kind of the institutional effort of Facebook to bring news organizations in. But the big difference I realized was that they never changed their algorithms of distribution, right? So all of a sudden, news organizations, what is our central tenet? Facts. Truth. We are accountable for the public sphere. So Facebook brings in all the news groups. We get lots of traffic, right, which is commodifying news. And when that happens, since they didn't change the algorithms of distribution, and what's the goal of the algorithms? To keep you scrolling, right? So you're scrolling, but why are you scrolling? Because your emotions, fear, anger, hate. As in 2018, MIT came out with a study that said lies spread faster than facts on mm -hmm. social media because facts are really boring. And mm -hmm. We spend our careers learning how to tell better stories mm. that capture your attention. So once you have instant articles in, and I know this because what I did is four news organizations were asked by Facebook to go on, on to instant articles in 2015. And I said, yes, okay, fine. We'll be one of the four. And you were I, one, of the, one of the guinea pigs. And I dumped everything in because I wanted a baseline right? Before and after. I'm very mm -hmm. simple that way. We need to have a baseline because this is like a titration experiment. You got to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I figured if like I would get time six, the traffic through Facebook, then maybe I won't need my website. Thank God it didn't happen. It was less than one-to-one, -one, which meant I was giving up page views on our website in exchange for nothing, basically. So that reminded me that they were experimenting with news, not realizing the huge impact that could have. 
So that was when it began to change. And then as they brought news organizations in, because they paid Western news organizations mm-hmm. significant amounts of money to go onto yeah, Facebook, remember, yeah. those those algorithms of distribution didn't change. They continued to to actually uh, spread lies over facts. So they, they they took a they took a business model that was essentially advertising, which is persuasion, and grafted it onto a different business, which was supposed to be about truth telling. Uh, well, yeah. So I would go the other way because I don't call what they do advertising, not the old world advertising, right? Micro targeting is mm-hmm. very specific. It is much more manipulative than the old world advertising. We need to have. So I, I really make the distinction of micro targeting. When they grafted news onto onto Facebook, that's when we began to see shifts happening. Now, you took your concerns to Facebook in 2016. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah. What What was that meeting like? How did it go? I mean, I so I had seen this. I had already, we all had relationship managers from Facebook, right? And in many ways in the Philippines, we were far ahead. They didn't open their office in the Philippines until 2016. So I was in touch. We were like alpha partners for Facebook because we knew the Philippines very, very well. And it's just they didn't make that much money from the Philippines. Right? So still profit was the driver. They listened more to people, to countries that gave more money. Um, so this one, I went to Singapore. And in Singapore, I had so much data backing me up. I, I showed them how free speech was being used to stifle free speech, how 26 fake accounts can influence up to 3 million others. You know, so if you lie, if you create information operations, the spread was incredible. Can, can you can you give us an example? There's a great um, passage in your book about this guy called Sam who who claims that he that he essentially made the war on drugs this number one issue for Duterte's campaign and and by implication got him into power. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look. Um, forever. I mean, we we have these surveys that have been there forever, and the top concerns of Filipinos never fail. Our jobs, health is there, and education maybe comes down, right? So it's always, do you have enough money to put food on the table? Because we don't. Most Filipinos don't. This guy comes in, young kid, dressed like, like he you know, dressed like he's in a punk rock band. And he comes in and and it makes sense because what he said aligned with several things we were noticing, that that he began to create Facebook pages that were, you know, about your first date or your first love or something innocuous. It's almost like a Trojan horse. And then once they're there, they began when he began working with the Duterte campaign, the goal was to bring what Duterte is good at, which was law and order, drug war, the drug war. And they moved the drug war from you know, fr- from a number eight concern, not to say that it wasn't a problem. Yeah. So a number eight concern to number one by the time Duterte was running for office. And this guy, did he get co-opted by the Duterte campaign or, or did he mean to do this from the start? What was his... This is, I mean, the thing here is this is a learning, right? Like, and in the Philippines was one of the places where people experimented because you can do it with impunity. Uh, it, the, the other part that's not there is, you know, the Philippines is kind of um, 
a fraud capital for online. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you remember um, the Kim.com. Right. Yeah. His wife is Filipina. Really? He operated in the Philippines oh. for a period. And of then time. there was the, the, the QAnon. QAnon. Thing, the Kate Kuhn and the, the, the Watkins duo who All also operated out of the, the Philippines. Philippines. Yeah. Yes. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. What is it about the Philippines? I mean, I've asked this already, but... Is this it, it? So it was. It was an English-speaking, presumably um, low labor costs. Is that yep. something to do? Very with? much. Cost of living is very low. Um, there's no account. Of, I mean, law and order is weak, so you can weak get away. Yeah. Exper- you can experiment with many things. But you know, like the easy part when it was terrorism. Um, why did they test the tactics for terrorism? Well, our airport is like the United States. We had the same systems as the United States of airport security. So you had uh, Mohammed Jamal Khalifa, who's the brother-in-law of Osama bin Laden, come to the Philippines as early as 88. To probe the defenses. Well, he was bringing in money for charities, Mm. Muslim charities. Mm. So that Mm. was the beginning. Follow the money. We know Mm -hmm. this, right? And then by 1993, after the first World Trade Center bombing in the basement, the truck bombing, Ramzi Yusuf flees to the Philippines where he begins to train the Abu Sayyaf, one of our terrorist organizations linked to Al-Qaeda later. Um, And then his uncle is the architect of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Mm. They were living in the Philippines. So one of the, uh, some of the stories I did for CNN was talking to their girlfriends and how they experimented. I don't know if you remember the 2002 shoe bomber, Richard Reed coming out of London Mm -hmm. airport, right? Well, that plot, the liquid bomb plot, was tested in the Philippines in 1994. And it was actually Ramsey Youssef who went through airport security, got it in his shoes where there's a two-inch thick gap, and they got it onto a Philippine Airlines plane. It exploded under the seat of a Japanese businessman and killed that businessman. Mm. You know, so these are things. So why, you asked why the Philippines, because I think... We're, we're deceptively familiar to Westerners, and um, we use similar systems. We're connected to the rest of the world. Even our language is very familiar. Those are some of the ones. But look, even things like uh, Donald Trump's likes, a certain number, kind of a lot, one in yes, 27, yeah. come from the Philippines, right? And most recently, we were looking at who are the foot soldiers of these information operations that are now kind of being outsourced to the rest of the world. So, but you you took these concerns, just to go back to that Facebook yeah. meeting in 2016. This is because Facebook got absolutely hammered over you know, mm. Russian disinformation on the site in the 2016 election and people sort of accusing them of giving the election to Trump, essentially, by by playing host to all of this disinformation. But that was in November. You brought your concerns to them yes, when? Early. Ma- early 2016. Early. It was like the latest one. The meeting itself happened in August of 2016. Right. And, uh, and we were, I remember this because I, as a joke, I was saying, you know, 
guys, this is so alarming that if we don't do something about it, Trump could win. This has global implications. And we all laughed. There were five of us around the table. We laughed. And then, of course, when Trump won, you know, after the November elections, they asked me for more of the data again. (laughs) It's unbelievable. So So they weren't taking you seriously. I think they were getting this particular group did not. I think they looked at it with horror. This is, after all, the policy and news partnerships. And and they were their task was in in some ways to mollify me, to pacify me. Right. Make you go away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but, you know, we could see it. We could see it. And I kept bugging them. I in fact, I held the story. This is how important it was. I was working on this story. My co-founder and I did. You have the data. Yeah. I held on to it because I was naive enough to think that if they know the problem, they can then solve it so that I could then get, you know, so this is what Facebook did to prevent this from happening. Mm -hmm. I waited. I waited a month. Right. And then we finally came out with it um, without any statement from Facebook, without any. I was hoping they would give me data. Right. And and you you put a warning up on your website and they took it down. Oh, that also happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, this really <laughs> what shows you, what you. What did you conclude from that, right? What does it show you? Um, let me just say, I am an optimist. And I was hoping and continued, to, and I still continue to work with Facebook today. But I have learned since after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, when we became a fact-checking partner. There are only two Filipino fact-checking partners of Facebook. And we accepted it. At that point, I knew that Facebook knew. I was part of many meetings where they were trying to figure out, and there were smart people there who knew what to do. Much later, we find out that they weren't listened to. You know, the release of the Francis Haugen, the documents, mm. the internal documents. I mean, you write in the book, I believe that Facebook represents one of the gravest threats to our democracies around the world. And I am amazed that we have allowed our freedoms to be taken away by technology companies' greed for growth and revenues. I mean, is that, is that basically it? They didn't do anything about it because they were making money off it. Yes. Right. And that is both the anecdotal um, and reporting that came out afterwards every single thing we had said was verified later and then you know we come out with it deny deflect and i'm like thinking well oh well and we weren't the only ones telling them this right Mm -hmm. ukraine had done that president obama said he did but it was it was a certain uh, it's it's an arrogance and a and an ignorance about the the what happens when big data changes human behavior, mm-hmm. right? When the change of scale literally changes. And when growth, quote unquote, economic growth, profit becomes the ultimate goal, goal, the yep. ultimate good. There's like everything else will flow from that. And so therefore that is your ultimate aim, right? Isn't that horrific? I yeah. mean, you know, that's when I begin to think because American CEOs will always defend you know, and businessmen tell me this all the time. They'll say, Yes, but that's shareholder value. Uh, guess what? There's more to well, the world than just shareholders. <laughs> well, more than that, right? There's you, the president, um, or the CEO, there's a line between amoral, immoral, and evil. And in the book, I do compare this to the tobacco industry. Now, you say, because I just want to dig a little bit into this whole idea of disinformation and lies, because, yes, social media has kind of supercharged it, but it's not it's not like this stuff didn't exist before the Internet. Right. So so you say that lies repeated over and over 
become fact in the online ecosystem. And that, that's a great way of putting it. And then we've, I've seen that myself in my own work, working with people who believe in QAnon, this kind of crazy conspiracy theory about a cabal of satanic pedophiles who stole the 2020 election, etc., etc. But this is not unique to social media. This, this has existed before and, and lies or untruths have been told in the traditional media ecosystem as well. And many of Donald Trump's supporters would point, for example, to the whole kind of Chris Steele dossier and the Russia gate yes. um, story that actually most of it turned out not to be true, which was, well, it was supercharged online, but it was also just supercharged in the papers, right? And on CNN and yep. MSNBC. Yep. There's a big difference. Go on. The difference in scale. It's scale, which is what these tech companies aim for, scale. 3.2 billion connected in a way we never have been before. Propaganda exponentially said a million times, right? Targeting specifically the weakest. And I've seen this. I've had family and friends become part of the Russian disinformation system. When when uh, Facebook took down the IRA and the GRU, so did some mm -hmm. accounts of people I knew, right? Because this, think of it like a virus of lies that infects. It's a closed system, but when you infe infect it, it spreads. So that spread. So here's the big difference with propaganda in the old days, um, or even intelligence work in the old days. When it moves at human pace, you can react at human speed. When it moves at the speed of exponential data, right? There's a big difference between an Excel sheet and big data. That is the world we live in. That is when we become Pavlov's dogs. And this is a behavior modification system. It, it literally, it impacts us at three levels. People, you know, the first is psychologically, you're pounded. I mean, certainly the impact on me, if I didn't have the data, I would have been silenced. Mm. And that is a big chunk of society that are silenced, mm -hmm. women in particular. The second layer is, some, is a layer I studied when I was looking at how radicalization, how the virulent ideology of Al-Qaeda spread. This is sociologically in groups, right? And we can go back to like the 60s where the Milgram studies, the, the kinds of conformity studies that show that we behave differently in groups. I mean, in high school, peer pressure shifts your behavior. And then the very last one is the part that we don't discuss at all. It is emergent human behavior at scale, species level. We are being changed by the technology. To our worst selves, mm -hmm. you know, and that to me is what is so alarming because this, these are all, we're only talking about the cascading failures. The death of democracy is only a cascading failure, mm. but it is literally changing us as a species. And that's part of the reason I do think we need legislation. This is harmful. There's something um, that makes me slightly uncomfortable about some of Please. these conversations, which is that there's a sort of base level assumption that Trump is a bad thing, that Brexit is a bad thing, um, that, uh, I mean, Duterte may well be a bad thing, right? Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying I, I do or don't agree with that, but, I, but we do know, for example, that, you know, nearly 75 million Americans, for example, voted for Donald Trump uh, in 2020, even though, yeah. though he, he lost. So uh, I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out whether before we get to 
social media is being weaponized by bad people to do bad things, which I think we've absolutely established. Was there something else rotten in the state of Denmark, in, in the state of kind of world democracies that, that meant that this was so easy to do? So let me first say that it isn't that the, it isn't these political things, right? Uh, I'm actually not taking a position. What I am after is individual will, agency, right? Because it is the insidious manipulation that's wrong. Doesn't matter if we all voted for Brexit because we chose to do it, right? It's agency that is critical for me. In this instance, we have evidence of information operations. In Trump's elections, Americans, and this is something that came out in the Senate Intelligence Committee reports, the data was released. There is a Mueller report that's a thousand pages long that show that the GRU and the RIA targeted Americans, targeted identity, these flashpoints of emotions, right? But but things that that do already exist, right? They, they do they, exist, they, but it's different when it's weaponized, right? So yeah. what I mean by that is mm. like something identi- like in identity, like Black Lives Matter, which was a positive, right? Mm. But what did IRA and GRU do? They targeted both sides. It's like inciting hate. I know how easy it is to make someone angry mm. and make them pull out a gun, right? In the real world. Now imagine if that is always what is happening. So it... it pushes us towards a level of violence. And we've seen this. Online violence is real-world violence. But so let me go back to your question about you're saying, are we not like that? Because this is also something that technologists say. We are only mirroring what humanity Sorry. is. That's not true. The telephone lines only delivers the message. The telephone companies don't decide which messages you get to hear ring, mm. Right. The companies, the tech companies decide. And what they have done is prioritize lies, hate, anger, fear. And this shifts our our development as human beings, as societies, as governments. It is, I, I, I feel great empathy for anyone in government today. Because what do you do if you're trying to reach people? If you're really trying to do a good job, but no one believes you, this is because, where we are. Because you, you you talk a lot in the book about um, shared reality. And this yes. is something that I've been sort of grappling with yes. for the last few years as I've spent a lot of time in this kind of right-wing Trump MAGA world where where it feels like you're you're actually in a different reality. I sometimes compare it to, to, to this, or in fact, it wasn't my idea. It was one of Trump's sort of operatives, this guy, called, this guy called um, Jack Posobiec, who, who talked about the fact that the 2016 election was like the electorate were watching two different movies, mm. all with the same characters, but with entirely different plot lines. And I'm constantly searching for, and, and you can see how people are weaponizing that, and you can see how people are using the... Um, the technology to do that. But I'm constantly trying to see it from the other side's point of view. And I'm wondering whether, you know, in the run-up to, uh, let's say, the 2016 election, if a if somebody who genuinely was a Trump supporter would look at, at the establishment media, the, the world that I come from and you yeah, come from, yeah. and go, these guys are making up a completely parallel reality about how Trump is this kind of uniquely evil and corrosive presence, right? Or the same with Brexit. There were, you know, millions of Britons who looked at the reporting ahead of Brexit and thought, 
that is not the the Britain that you are describing is not the Britain that I recognize. So I wonder if I don't want to be like both sides isms or what about isms, mm, but mm. you know, are, are we all guilty of of creating our own realities and not seeing other people's realities? Enough? I mean, we always have been, but the difference is that you never had establishment do this, right? So, what, and what do I mean by that? I mean that in the past. When news organizations were held accountable for the public sphere, regardless of what you can think, right, whether you're left or right or whatever, and I mean, let's not even talk politics. Yeah. Everyone has individual beliefs. That's called our individuality. But we all agreed to be in a shared space. And news organizations were accountable for mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. A government official who lies is very clear he lies. Mm -hmm. It used to be that we would do a story and expose a lie. And then the official will say, yes, thank you. I am so sorry. I will never do it again. When was the last time you had that? <laughs> no, that right? was a very long time right. ago. Right. Now it's double down on double the lie. Down, and because of, and again, yeah. what I think you are describing is the cascading failure enabled by this, by this do you think poisonous been, Do you think there's system. been a, do you think there's been a tendency sometimes in the established media to not hold the establishment to account because they feared that it would fuel this corrosive other side of politics? You know, look, I know that this is a very tenuous time for traditional media, not only because of the changes in our information ecosystem of what online has done, right, but also because power has shifted. And you, like, I talk to a lot of news heads all around the world where they say, how do we restore trust? And I keep going back to, we cannot restore trust. The power we used to have is like the vestigial it's tail. Gone. Yeah. We no longer <laughs> yeah. have it. And yeah. it is the vestigial in, tail. I love that. <laughs> right. It is in the tech company's hands. And as long as they use this system, we will never have a shared reality because the entire incentive structure is upside down. It's like you telling your kids, go lie all the time because you're going to get what you want anyway. Lie all the time. That is not the world we live in. There are costs to these types of things. Are there still positives to social media? And I'm thinking, for yeah. example, of Russia, a place where state-controlled television is the, is the big beast in the room and where actually in the online spaces, people can still find real information about this war that's going on in Ukraine. Yeah, no, I mean, there are def, and this is part of the reason, even though my language is strong, it's fact-based and evidence-based. I want regulations in place to protect us, but it's more than what's happening in Ukraine, right? It is, I mean, me too, you know, you have Iran and the women who are using this. Twitter, for all of the things that, that Elon Musk has done in the last few weeks, was a global public sphere where activists used it for good, right? There is still a lot of good, but I'm just saying we have more than reached. A few years ago, we reached the point where the good was outpaced by the bad and where democracy begins to die. I mean, I, it is not a coincidence that 60% of the world now lives under autocratic rule and that the number of democracies has rolled back to 1989 levels. This is hand in hand. The rise of Anne Applebaum calls it Autocracy Inc. I'm going to call it Kleptocracy Inc. Mm -hmm. Right? This is in the real world. And then that goes hand in hand with this kind of the nervous system that is 
pushing the rise of, and I guess I'm, I'm going to say the far right, but I don't take a political position here, right? Let's strip off the political lenses. I am after a shared reality because facts are not debatable. This is a glass of water, right? If you don't believe me, drink it, right? <laughs> I can prove it. And then give us agency to make a choice. And democracy requires that individual will and requires we listen. Do you think democracy will survive? We're in the last two minutes. It is, you know, 2024 will be critical because we look at the number of elections this year, next year where you have Turkey, Nigeria, African nations, India begins its uh, regional elections. And then 2024 is a red letter year. Um, the big ones, Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim population, India, the world's largest democracy, and the United States. I mean, you have the EU also in 2024. So, if we elect more illiberal leaders democratically and they collapse institutions in their own countries and then ally together to shift geopolitical power balance, you know, there's something called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization that's led by China and Russia. In September, they brought in Turkey, Myanmar, and um, Turkey, Myanmar, and Iran. Iran, right? So geopolitical power is shifting. Mm. And... It starts at the kind of molecular level, the person-to-person -person level, and it has been enabled by tech. And here's the last part I would say, right? Um, the Chinese understand this because they have two versions of TikTok. <laughs> you know this, right? They have two versions? They have two versions I didn't know that. There is the Chinese version, the one inside China. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Sure. And the one that you can get outside. And the one that, yeah. you, that they export. Yeah. Um, and this is Tristan Harris, who was actually, who had said this. He said that uh, in China, you know, if you're 14 years old and below, TikTok will, will cut off at a certain point. You can't have a certain, they keep the kids because they know it's harmful. They give them educational videos and at a certain number of hours, they stop. You can't watch more than. Sounds like a great it, idea. <laughs> that, that's, he called it the spinach version of TikTok. Right, right. Eat your greens. Eat your greens. But then the one they exported to the rest of us in the world is the opioid version. Ah, revenge for what we did 150 years ago. <laughs> um, I mean, but again, like, and, and I don't think it's a coincidence. It's a tech CEOs, you know, the people who built this keep their kids off of this. Yeah. Maria Reza, that sounds, seems like a suitably... Well, depressing uh, place to end it. You're an optimist, though. We I cannot. can see you yeah. sitting here opposite me, smiling yeah. and full of energy and what we do today, ready to do stuff. Well, what we do today matters, right? Yeah. The data is there. We know what it's doing to us. You know, I say think slow, not fast. Collaborate together to protect the facts. I mean, I don't want to see democracy die. Gabriel, right? There's so many journalists who are doing so much and and citizens. I think it's not a coincidence that the Norwegian Nobel Committee last year gave the Peace Prize to journalists, and this year they gave it to civil society, to activists. This is the time to act. So act now. Maria Reza, Nobel Peace Prize winner and author of How to Stand Up to a Dictator, which is available now. Here it is. It's a great book. Um, and you are a great person. So thank you very much for being with us. Um, I'm Gabriel Gatehouse, and you've been listening to, or in some cases, watching Intelligence Squared. Thanks for joining us.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.